Okay. Good morning. Uh, this is Gary Moyer. I'm the moderator for the, the this session this morning, uh, taking the gl a glider from design to flight by Timothy Lennon and uh, an introduction by Matt. Um, and uh, so we'll we'll get into that in just a moment. Uh, first things up. Um, this is uh, one of the programs that we have on the technical committee, and uh, we try to uh, use both uh, the, the full range of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics points of interest, including uh, uh, aircraft and spacecraft and space missions, uh, mission systems, and, and any other uh, area of interest that we can have. So. Uh, today we have Tim Marinone, who is uh, involved in the development of the uh, Berlin glider, uh, a glider that uh, set a world record for altitude in uh, unpowered flight, and uh, particularly the one of the main themes that he's going to be talking about is the flutter analysis. Uh, for those of us that are aeronauticists or aeronautically trained, that's a particularly interesting subject because it involves all aspects of uh, an aircraft's performance and the env environment that you're in. And so, uh, Tim was involved in the uh, uh, in the uh, uh, initial testing and uh, data analysis and revisions and, and, and uh, modifications of the aircraft to uh, to fully expand this flight envelope. So uh, he will be also have a, a little bit of introduction from his employer, ATA Engineering, that uh, is a uh, a service organization that is, uh, well, they'll, they'll describe its full functions. Uh, I did have an occasion to work with ATA some years ago, and they're a, a very skillful, very experienced group of people. So, uh, Tim was uh, received a master's degree at the University of uh, Massachusetts in Lowell. And he's been working about 10 years at ATA. He's basically a service engineer in addition to being a, a test engineer, meaning that he supports the functions that uh, the Siemens Corporation's analytical systems carry. Uh, and uh, that's a full range of equipment uh, targeting from the uh, from small corporations such as my own, uh, which is uh, a consulting company, to uh, to the uh, major aircraft in industry companies. So uh, Tim is going to carry on with this in a moment. But first, we'll hear from Matt. Matt Schumer. Yeah. Good morning. Good afternoon. Uh, morning to most of you folks in the Pacific. 
uh, West Coast. I'm up here in Minneapolis, so I'm central just after the noon hour. So thanks, Gary, for that warm welcome. I appreciate it. I was just going to give another brief intro to ATA and uh, our relationship with Siemens on this, uh, the testing hardware and software side that can support projects like this, like you mentioned, Gary, on, on, on consulting and uh, smaller company startup all the way up to majors like Northrop and Boeing and Raytheon and ATK and companies like this. So again, good morning uh, and good afternoon. Thank you for having us today. Uh, my name is Matt Schumann. I'm one of ATA's business development managers, focused specifically within our dynamic testing group. Uh, we're excited to share with you the Perlan Glider project that ATA Engineering was chosen to partner with on taking their world-class glider. Sorry, bear with me. I just lost my screen for a second. Yeah, you're in the who, who we are screen with the uh, with the uh, the staff photograph. Yeah. Um, okay. Sorry. Yep. So I um, housekeeping notes this morning. I'm not sure if uh, we'll have we can have questions throughout because we have a small group. I think that that's probably fine. I know previously we kind of muted folks out and then table questions. I can jot questions down or we can put them in the chat um, Q&A, but uh, I presume we can kind of have it open flow um, if that's okay with Tim throughout. Uh, mm -hmm. So Tim, if you want to go to slide two. Um, oh, sorry. So for those who are not familiar with ATA engineering, uh, we are an employee-owned small business with just under 200 full-time employees. Uh, our staff consisting of uh, many highly experienced engineers, uh, project managers, and business development professionals uh, who combine decades of industry and academic experience and achievement from undergraduate up to many with PhD level expertise. ATA's roots are deep into aerospace and defense, space exploration, and launch vehicles. And we also work with companies who provide uh, fun things like themed entertainment rides and support manufacturers of heavy and industrial equipment, automotive and transportation. Our founders began many as aerospace and mechanical engineers passionate about solving our world's most complex engineering feats. We have a large professional engineering staff dedicated to structural, modal, thermal, and advanced testing, simulation, and analysis. ATA Engineering has placed office locations from the West Coast to the East Coast, predominantly in strategic R&D locations to support aerospace and defense companies. We're also proud to serve as a platinum level reseller and a partner of Siemens going on more than 15 years. So ATA has developed some of its own proprietary software suite to support our customers. And we are one of Siemens' largest software solution integrators for engineering tools such as NX, NASTRAN, CFD simulations such as Star CCM Plus, SimCenter, which consists of SimCenter Test, SimCenter 3D, SimCenter Flow EFD, uh, Team Center for PLM, and Solid Edge for CAD modeling. We support end to end engineering through training, service, license renewal, and new license and hardware sales. If anybody has any questions related to that, feel free to send Tim or I uh, an email or call anytime. We'd be happy to help chat with you more about that. So Mr. Mayor, known as a project engineer, as Gary mentioned with ATA's advanced test group for more than 10 years now, Tim has supported customers with a focus on vibration and modal testing of defense systems and flight vehicles, 
and has performed real-time flutter monitoring or flight tests for military and commercial aircraft to ensure both flight safety and accurate flight measurements. Tim received his bachelor's and master's in mechanical engineering from the University of Massachusetts Lowell in 2010 and 2012, respectively. So with that, I'll turn it over to Tim and he can share with you guys a bit more about the Perlan glider story and how ATA uh, uh, took the glider to flight. Thanks. Hey, thanks, Matt. Um, thanks, Gary. Thanks, Ken. Um, and thanks all of you uh, who are joined. Um, so as Matt mentioned, my name is Tim Marinoni uh, and I am a test engineer, AT engineering. Um, I also support ATA's VAR business as an applications engineer for Sim Center test. Um, so before we get into the specifics of the Perlin 2 project, um, I just want to sort of go over the agenda um, for today's talk. Um, I'm going to start by spending just a few minutes uh, with an overview of Flutter. Uh, I'm assuming probably most of you are pretty familiar with this, but um, just because I don't know the demographics, figure just a recap would be good. Uh, I'm then going to briefly talk about how the Siemens portfolio can be used at every step along the path as you go through that journey. Um, and then I'll spend the majority of our time actually getting into the Perlin 2 ladder um, and basically talk about how we help the customer progress from the design of the glider uh, all the way through flight. Um, and obviously this could be a pretty uh, intensive and far ranging discussion. Um, so as a disclaimer, uh, we're, it's not gonna be a, a flutter course. It's not gonna be a detailed dive into the mechanics of calculating flutter. Uh, it's not gonna be detailed dive into how to do a ground vibration test, model correlation or flight testing. So um, if any of those topics uh, are of interest, um, I've just provided a couple uh, links to other webinars. Um, one is another webinar that ATA did in 2021 that covers uh, flutter predictions analysis in far greater detail um, with regards to using SimCenter 3D and NASTRAN. Um, and so I'll do the plug. Uh, you can go to ATA Engineering's uh, YouTube page and find it there. Um, and then uh, Siemens also provides a lot of free resources. Um, there's an article about uh, ground vibration testing and flutter analysis. Um, and there's also a free on-demand webinar about um, flutter clearance. So I uh, just want to say there are some free available resources if you want to go a little bit deeper into any one of these areas. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, let's just take a couple of minutes uh, to go over flutter. Uh, I'm going to try and stay high level. <coughs> So uh, what is Flutter? Uh, what do we mean when we talk about Flutter? Uh, well, we're talking about this aeroelastic phenomenon that causes the structure to be self-excited and extract energy from the airstream during flight. Um, so this is caused by uh, this complex interaction between three different sets of forces. We've got our inertia forces, our aerodynamic forces, and our elastic forces. Um, and so You've probably seen uh, either these videos or similar videos um, if you've been in the um, flutter structural dynamics um, uh, discipline at all. Um, but basically what you're seeing is very visible uh, movement of the wings. Um, and so what's happening is that at certain combinations of airspeed and altitude, um, this dynamic pressure that the aircraft's experiencing can actually cause uh, your frequencies um, of the aircraft and its modes to shift. Um, and if it, the mode shifts in such a way um, that it couples with another mode um, unstably, then you're going to get this negative damping. Um, especially if it's a, it's a surface coupling, such as a wing or a tail, um, 
and it's like a bending or a torsion mode, then your flutter is going to really be a problem. And so uh, I'm seeing a couple chats. I just want to make sure. Oh, okay, good. Um, so the figure on the right shows an example plot of uh, frequency and damping versus airspeed. Um, and so what you'll see is that as we start to shift between 200 and 280 knots, um, these two modes shift to be on top of each other. And the damping of the mode goes in green goes positive or what we call negative damping. And so basically it's saying at that airspeed, uh, there is a risk of this flutter to occur. So why do we perform an aeroelastic analysis? So fundamentally it's to ensure safety in flight. Um, so you may have seen this video as well. This is a famous one from NASA. Um, but as you can see, if the flutter conditions become severe enough, you can actually have catastrophic failure. And so um, it will actually, you can actually see it um, uh, damaged and ultimately uh, get destroyed. Um, and the challenging thing with flutter is because flutter is such a, a uh, quick phenomenon that can occur. Um, there's very little time to recover in the event that the pilot um, does start experiencing flutter. It's often on the order of seconds. Um, and so it's really important to know when is flutter going to occur and to sort of safely stay away from those conditions so that you never get into a flutter phenomenon. So how do we do this? So at a high level, uh, we're going to start with the finite element model or a simulation model, uh, which we're going to use to calculate the aircraft's natural frequencies and mode shapes. Um, and as we'll show when we get to the Perlin glider, um, we do need to have that confidence that our simulation model accurately represents our aircraft. So to do this, we perform what's called a, a ground vibration test or a GVT, um, which is then used to experimentally measure the aircraft's modal parameters. Uh, once we have experimental data, uh, we're then going to compare it to our simulation, and we're going to perform a correlation updating process to reduce um, areas of uncertainty in our model and ultimately better match our actual hardware. Uh, once we're confident in our, in our model, we're then going to do uh, an aeroelastic analysis to identify um, the flight regions where flutter is expected to occur. And then finally, we're going to verify th that analysis by actually doing flight testing and actually measuring our, our frequencies and damping, uh, measuring those aeroelastic properties, um, and confirming um, our analysis. So uh, this sketch um, illustrates sort of the different steps in the verification process that's going to be typically followed by really anyone who's starting from either a clean sheet uh, aircraft design or they're doing a significant mod to it. So you're going to start by having your FE model um, that you create, and then you'll do that ground vibration test that's going to um, basically uh, validate that model. Uh, you might simultaneously also do a wind tunnel test and to validate the aerodynamics. Uh, once you've got that, you're then going to typically um, also figure out, okay, how are you controlling your aircraft? And so that's when you go into the Ironbird um, and basically sure that your your control schema um, is not going to cause you to uh, go unstable. And then finally, you take all those different pieces together and do your final air elastic models and you do that flight flutter test. And so um, if you're familiar um, uh, or if you've ever had to go through this um, with F either FAA, ESA, or any of the other, um, uh, what should we call it, the, the, the compliance people, for lack of a better word, 
um, basically they, they mandate you go through this process to show that you're going to be fluttered through, through your entire flight envelope plus an additional safety margin. Um, and so it's really important throughout this whole process uh, to have really good data um, so that you have confidence before you go to your flight flutter test. So I do just want to take a moment to go over the Siemens portfolio. Um, so as Matt did mention, we are a, a value-added reseller for Siemens. And so I um, just want to briefly talk about what they offer, um, if that's of interest to you. Um, so the first thing we're going to do is go back to that initial high-level view of the interactions between um, the three forces, our inertial forces, our aerodynamic, and our elastic. And so our governing equation um, is that the aerodynamic forces that act upon the aircraft, um, meaning F of T, are going to be balanced by those inertial forces, um, our mass times acceleration, and our elastic forces, our stiffness and displacement. So how do we get those interaction of those forces? Um, so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to do our interaction between our inertial and our elastic forces, uh, which is our structural dynamic portion. Uh, so for this portion, we'll do our modeling and modal analysis in SimCenter 3D uh, using structural dynamics. And then we'll do our testing um, with our GVT using SimCenter Test Lab. Um, and so we'll talk about that a little bit more on the next slide. So next is our interaction between our inertial and our aerodynamic forces. Um, so for this portion, uh, we'll do our CFD analysis uh, using SimCenter Star CCM. Uh, and then we'll validate those, that model with the wind tunnel test. And so lastly is our inter interaction between our initial and our aerodynamic forces. Sorry, interaction between our elastic and aerodynamic forces. Uh, and so in this case, we're going to do a static aeroelastic analysis using SimCenter 3D and SimCenter Nastra and using solution uh, 144. So once we've gotten all those different pieces uh, together, uh, we can finally do our flutter analysis. Um, so if we're in a subsonic regime, then we're going to be able to use SimCenter 3D and SimCenter NASTRAN with the solution 145. If we're in a transonic or supersonic regime, then we'll have to use SimCenter Star CCM and SimCenter NASTRAN. Um, so what I hope I've showed you with the slide is just, this is a very complex problem, um, as I'm sure you're aware. But uh, Siemens does have the portfolio to handle it. Oops. Uh, so SimCenter does offer a, a complete streamlined solution to characterize the dynamic behavior of a structure, uh, both numerically as well as experimentally. So uh, kind of the way uh, this portion works is you start with doing your pretest analysis. Um, so you're going to have a, an, an original model. It's not yet validated. And you're going to use that to sort of to decide how do you want to run your test. So where do I want to install my sensors? How do I want to excite my structure? And so test lab and SCADIS um, are then going to allow you to actually perform the test. And so you're going to do your instrumentation, uh, your measuring, and then your modal analysis uh, so that you can get uh, efficiently reliable uh, FRFs and get that best experimental modal model uh, that represents your data. Uh, once you've got uh, your set of uh, mode shapes, your experimental results, well, then you're going to take it uh, and go into SimCenter 3D and the structural dynamics and actually compare your model to your test data and do any correlation updating uh, in order to better match your model to your test data. And then finally, from that point, you can then go into your do your uh, flutter simulation. 
Um, and then I just wanted to go for anyone who is in the uh, flight uh, testing world. Um, Siemens also has a solution for as you're going through the flutter testing campaign. Uh, but also, if anyone has never done uh, flutter testing, it's really instructive to kind of see how it goes. So what we have here is a nominal set of flutter test points that we are intending to evaluate. So this initial dash line is sort of the initial uh, clearance that we're allowed to fly. And then we're trying to get all the way to that um, that larger line. And so at each test point, what we're going to do is first we're going to go to that first test point and we're going to get our aircraft there. And so we, it's a certain combination of airspeed, it's a certain combination and altitude. At that point, we're going to activate our flutter excitation system and we're going to collect that data. That uh, we're typically going to use telemetry data um, and send it to SimCenter Test Lab. Uh, because it's really hard to actually stay perfectly at altitude and at airspeed, uh, and we're going to expect to see some variation, we're going to average those flight parameters to get sort of, okay, what is our average uh, flight test point? At that point, we're then going to automate our, our modal analysis, our operational modal analysis, um, and we're going to extract frequencies and damping um, that we're seeing from our, our aircraft. And so from what that allows us to do is that allows us to track our frequency and damping uh, with respect to flight conditions and identify, okay, are we at the point where we need to start? We're getting really close to our flutter um, to zero damping. Um, we need to be very careful or no, we're still very well damped. Um, we can just go to the next point. Um, typically, you're going to have your flight test engineer that's overseeing. Uh, they'll look at the data, make sure everything looks good. Um, and then if everything looks good, you get cleared to the next point, tell the pilot to go to that next point and then repeat. And so over time, that's going to give you your, um, allow you to expand the flight envelope. So uh, with that being said, let's get into the actual discussion of the Pearl and 2 glider. Um, and so I know that uh, Jim Payne from uh, the Pearl and Project uh, did present, uh, I think it was a couple years ago at this point. Um, so this will be coming from a little bit different perspective than what he uh, presented. But just to recap, uh, for those of you who either didn't see that talk or uh, have forgotten, so uh, the Perlin 2 is a composite sailplane uh, designed to fly to 90,000 feet. Um, ATA was not involved in the previous iteration, um, the Perlin 1 design, uh, but it set a record uh, in 2006 for powerless flight at just about 50,000 feet. Um, at that point, they realized, okay, uh, the Perlin 1 um, design was not going to allow us to go uh, much beyond that. And so they did this redesign um, in order to get to the Perlin 2. And so uh, as of 2018, uh, it does have a world record of uh, 76,000 feet. Um, still can't go up to haven't made it to 90,000 feet yet, but they're, they're hopeful. Um, and so why that's interesting uh, is because uh, the, of the way that the Perlin 2 actually works. And so uh, at, because the Perlin 2 is a glider, it doesn't have any engines. And so how does it he hit this altitude? Um, so what they found is that um, there's this phenomenon called stratospheric mountain waves. And basically um, at certain... Um, mountains, and it's really the, the Andes um, in Peru, um, it, 
you basically get this actual wave that comes off the mountain. And so I don't um, fully understand all the, the meteor, meaty metrological um, phenomena that causes it. But what it allows them to do is basically ride those waves. And depending on uh, what the wind is, what the temperature, um, they can actually get very um, high. Um, so in order to get to that initial part, what they do is they actually uh, get towed up to that minimum altitude, and then from there, um, they'll surf it. Um, as you can imagine, uh, they're trying to hit that goal of 90,000 feet. Um, there's significant challenges due to both the air density and the temperature. Um, and so there was a lot of um, engineering design that went into how do they actually uh, make sure that it's still going to function at both uh, sea level and at 90,000 feet. Um, however, before we get into that project, uh, I would like to show you the video that they put together um, in celebration of the record. Um, so hopefully this will work. Um, it's always fun showing videos, but um, let me know if it doesn't. One. Okay. One second. Let me stop sharing and try this again. <clears throat> I apologize for this. Let me just pull it up online real quick. that and this and this okay and make that full screen okay hopefully you can hear this now yep. Our goal is to fly to incredible altitudes in the stratosphere. We need very special conditions to fly into the stratosphere. Yes, this glider does actually do what we designed it to do. The dream was born for Paralon Mission 2. A lot of uh, individuals got involved to make that dream a reality. We've come to El Calafate in Argentina. Our goal is to get into some rising air. We're looking for areas of lift that will enable this aircraft to get into the upper reaches of the atmosphere. And there's only a few places on Earth that have stratospheric waves. We can put the glider into a patch of air that is going up at incredible speed, 1,000 feet per minute. You know, the same kind of speed you're climbing when you're in an Airbus airliner. We're going up at that speed, and it's actually nice to fly. <laughs> 
The virtual cockpit gives us all the information on the ground that, that we need to know if the flight is progressing safely and smoothly and that we're able to continue to progress higher and higher. We've added even more to the virtual cockpit. So this year we have a live video feed from the tail camera which should immerse the user even more into the flight experience of Pearl Am. We look at the pressure in the cockpit in the capsule. We look at oxygen that the pilots are breathing. We're looking at the battery. We're looking at temperatures at various instruments. If you want to be an innovative company, you have to be doing things that nobody else is doing, trying things nobody else is trying, and doing them in a way nobody has done them before. Perlin is an amazing opportunity that you don't get very often. We worked with a small school that's trying to form hypotheses kids inspired in science technology. Aviation is a fantastic potential career. There is true adventure, true exploring here. The perspectives you get from flying high, the freedom, the enjoyment have just been fantastic. Yeah, I thought that was just a really cool video to kind of um, see the excitement that they've got. Um, so let me go ahead and get back to the presentation. Okay, I think we're back in business. Um, so yeah, so uh, basically we start by just creating that uh, final element model. So yeah, as I mentioned, uh, the Perlin One uh, mission uh, did set that record in 2006, but in order to achieve the new altitude performance um, as desired by that team, uh, they had to do a significant redesign for the Perlin Two. Um, so they started out with a uh, computer model with solid geometry. Um, and that's when they reached out to ATA and asked for help. Um, so we took that solid geometry. Uh, we converted it into a finite element model. And of course, uh, you would love for that to be seamless, but inevitably you find uh, that there's issues. And so uh, we immediately noticed that there's a significant missing amount of information. Um, in order, uh, especially with their stiffness and mass, um, lots of joints that were um, uncertain. Um, and so you need to go, okay, how do I uh, fill in that information? And then ultimately, uh, because we're missing that information and we're making our best assumptions, now how do I make sure that my model is correct? And so uh, we're gonna do that by um, performing a test to get an accurate representation of that aircraft. Um, especially in, like I said, in joints where you have that uncertainty. Um, we also actually uh, use the solid geometry to make sure that um, the glider would fit inside our test lab. So uh, as you can see, um, we don't have a big hangar. We have a, a, a more of a small test lab. And so uh, luckily, the uh, and I'll show you in a bit, the glider actually came into pieces, which allowed us to basically build it uh, assemble it inside our test lab, but you can actually see you've got the tail sticking out. Uh, you've actually got part of the wing sticking out. So we basically uh, just managed to have it um, fit. And even then it was um, 
had a little bit sticking out. So, um, like I said, that this was kind of interesting because um, most of the time when we're performing these tests, um, we're going to the customer site. Uh, as you can imagine, that people are generally not flying um, 747s or military aircraft um, down to our test lab to test. And so all of our equipment is designed to be portable to go to the um, the company. But in this case, we were able to do it at our facility. And so um, they actually um, uh, carried it in a big U-Haul uh, with a trailer uh, down from Oregon. Um, and you can see we actually were um, unloading it, um, a very manual process. Um, to get everything off. And then, uh, so the first thing we did obviously was to um, get mass and CG. So we wanted to make sure we weighed everything, um, all the major components, um, just to sort of make sure that we did understand um, if the the as built uh, masses were, were like the drawings. And so um, from there, we were actually assembling it onto the fuselage. Um, at that point, we installed accelerometers, um, and then we actually suspended it uh, with bungees, um, and so that is a allows us to get this uh, boundary condition that basically resembles what it would be um, in flight. And from there, we can use shakers to excite the aircraft and to get measurements. All right, I'm going to assume that this is also, oh, here we go. Sorry about that. So, and what I thought was really interesting about that is, um, especially uh, for people who are typically uh, don't see this a lot, or maybe they only get to see it like once or twice in their life. Um, uh, it's really interesting just to kind of see um, how a, this type of test progresses. And you can see even with the sped up the way it was, there's a lot of instrumentation, there's a lot of work 
um, that to be done. Um, and that this was a um, not a huge test in comparison to some of the others we did, but still a pretty significant effort. Um, so once we'd done the test, um, we got all of our data. We were happy with our final set of results. Uh, we then wanted to go back into our model um, and update our FEM. Uh, so we first focused on the mass and CG of the individual components. Um, since we had those we had measured directly and, and we had a lot more confidence. And so you could do that by adjusting the density, um, by uh, figuring out any non-structural mass of the elements um, in order to match that test data. Uh, we then focused on the stiffness properties uh, by adjusting uh, both material properties um, as well as the joint spring properties um, that allowed us to better match the test data um, to better match those mode shapes and frequencies. And so at the end of it, we had a, a correlated model that we were happy with. Um, so once we'd gone um, through that correlation process, we were ready to create our air elastic model. Um, so this was uh, Perlan's nominal uh, design dive speed envelope. Um, and so you can see that uh, they have that 90,000 feet um, on the top, and then uh, they had the different mock values um, that they were targeting. And you can see uh, the blue was their, um, their goal that they wanted to expand to. Um, so we wanted to determine if that whole flight envelope was usable. Um, so to do that analysis, uh, the FEM geometry was used in order to develop that aeroelastic uh, model. Um, so in the aeroelastic model, um, you use some simplifications. Uh, if you have a lifting surface, you're going to model it as a plate. So that was the wings, the horizontal stabilizer, and the vertical stabilizer. Um, and then if you have a non-lifting surface, like the fuselage, you're just going to model it as a simple body. Um, so when we did the initial um, flutter analysis, uh, we did see that there were some modes, um, some instabilities that uh, were uh, likely to occur during flight um, at some combination of airspeed and altitude. And so uh, we wanted to be like, okay, let's make sure that these are the ones we're going to be tracking. Um, before we even got to flight, um, during the as part of the correlation effort, we noticed that the um, the aileron, um, and as you can imagine with the Perlin, there are multiple ailerons because of the 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 length of the wings. Um, it was really sensitive, um, and that if we were able to increase the aileron torsional stiffness, uh, we would have a significantly better flutter prediction. So uh, we were able to do that, and that did help it out a lot. Um, but obviously, we still wanted to do that flight testing um, in order to uh, validate the analysis. Um, so if you've never been uh, done flight testing, um, flight testing is always a challenge because um, you're, try you're basically trying to run everything off of aircraft power. Um, it's really challenging to get sensors uh, on the aircraft. And so, excuse me, and then especially for Perlin, Team, which uh, doesn't have uh, the resources and the budget of, say, a, a large um, uh, airline ma airplane manufacturer, uh, they had to be very creative. And so uh, they actually created this custom data acquisition system where they used a, an Arduino board for the actual acquisition, um, just a basic three-axis uh, MEMS DC accelerometer. 
um, and then stepper motors with offset masses. And so you can see in this picture on the right, um, we were comparing our uh, reference accelerometer, um, which is a much higher uh, performance accelerometer with theirs, just to make sure that uh, it was seeing the same results. And then um, in this other picture, um, you can see that we were actually uh, running the stepper motor. Um, and so it would, you see the mass at the bottom and as uh, it rotated, uh, you would measure with the force and we'd be able to figure out the, the maximum force that the motors could impart uh, to the aircraft. But this was just a really uh, nice, clever way to do this um, type of work. Um, so at the end of testing, uh, Perlin was ready to fly. So uh, data from Perlin was sent to ATA where we processed the data and compared it to analytical predictions. Uh, one aspect that was interesting with the Perlin flight testing um, is that unlike a powered aircraft, uh, where you can set the altitude and speed uh, fairly precisely, um, the glider is obviously wholly dependent on the strength of the atmospheric waves uh, for a given day. So uh, a lot of these test points, um, you end up sort of hitting them over and over because those were the only points that they could hit uh, if the waves weren't necessarily strong. Um, flight and, and flutter testing in particular, the data is rarely as clean and nice as you would hope for. Um, however, ATA was still able to pull out results for the modes of interest. Um, so you can see the frequencies for the five modes of interest. The uh, lines are the predictions from our analytical model and the dots are uh, our test data. Um, and yeah, the, the frequencies overall, overall compare well to the predictions. Uh, the damping is a little bit more scattered, and that's because it is a lot harder to measure damping um, accurately. But um, overall, it did follow the, the general overall trend, which gave Perlin uh, confidence to continue testing. Um, so ultimately, uh, the Perlin project is still ongoing as they attempt to hit 90,000 feet. Um, as you saw in the video, uh, they've also begun to focus more on scientific experiments. Um, the area uh, between 40 and 160,000 feet, known as the stratosphere, um, is really of particular interest um, to a lot of people um, as we're studying the Earth's climate. Um, what is nice about the glider is that it is one of the few research aircraft that can stay in the stratosphere uh, for a long period of time. Uh, so with that being said, um, I would like to thank the Perlin project team for their permission to publicly discuss their project. Um, they've been remarkably willing to allow ATA to showcase uh, this project for case studies for research. Um, hope I've given you an overview of Flutter, um, shown you how uh, the Siemens portfolio can help you in the process uh, and walked you through the process of how we took the Perlin glider from uh, design to flight. Um, it was a really fun project to be involved with. Um, at this point, um, I'd like to open it up for questions. Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> if anybody would like to put in a chat in their questions, I meant to ask this during the before the presentation. Uh, if you could do that as you were watching the presentation, that would be best. But. Um, Somebody raise their hands and see. So what was that mode nine that popped up so uh, so early? And why did it go away at 6,000 feet? Like it went, at lower altitudes, it went away. 
Yeah, where was that? <clears throat> right there. Yeah, that was uh, where Modine was the uh, the fuse lateral and the wing anti um, symmetric. And so, yeah, what's interesting is that um, it's it's really only at the the low um, altitude where your dynamic pressure is, is heavier, where you see it, um, and then as and then I think, let me go back to the data, uh, mode nine, so that's blue. Yeah, you really don't start to see it as you sort of get um, higher and the damping goes way down. Um, so basically, it, it kind of almost was no longer being excited at those at that um, higher uh, altitude. Did I answer your question or did I just talk around it? Oh, no, that's fine. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, so these modes that were of particular interest range from about four hertz to about nineteen. Mm -hmm. Okay, and and as the dynamic pressure increased, uh, the uh, mm, frequencies changed slightly. Yep. Yeah, and so we we never we at the at we because we never got high enough to get to. Uh, interesting from a from a aeroelastic point of view, you can see that as we would have gotten closer to that um, uh, to the right side of the curve, you would start to see the damping trend back to zero. And you can see on the left with the frequencies, those three modes starting to get awfully close together. Um, that would have been kind of the area of really really um, interest, but uh, we weren't able to hit those levels just because of the waves. And so. Um, that's still sort of an ongoing effort, um, but it's they've been focusing more on um, generally staying within their their current envelope and doing more experiments and uh, flying um, uh, in the range that we've uh, we've cleared them to. And so the maximum dynamic pressure that you've achieved at this point in test data is around point double five one five. Correct. Yep. And I, I don't recall what the answer was with regards to what that corresponds to in Mach number and altitude. But yeah, it was. So oh, I don't have that plot. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, it's they they got. I mean, ultimately it was the the seventy. Oh gosh, where is it? Seventy five thousand feet um, or so. But yeah, the airspeed is pretty low at that. Um, Oh, I went too far. Sorry. Um, yeah, seventy-six thousand. So I think it, it was pretty slow. I think maybe like a hundred knots at that um, speed. Indicated that out to do. Yeah. Yep. Yes. But, Correct. But the but the uh, true Mach number, the true. Uh, uh, <laughs> True value, a true velocity relative to the surface, right? Substantially higher than that. Yep. I have a question. Sorry. Um. Um. My name is uh, Giuseppe Veneri. Um. And I have a question about. Uh, could you briefly describe how you average the raw data to to get the modes? Uh, I I forget exactly. I know there's like 
ways that you shouldn't do it that you'd probably mask data mm-hmm. but how, how do you do it so you don't like lose critical information sure and you're talking about during the the ground testing or the flight the, testing uh, the flight but yeah yeah so the the flight testing um is is definitely some of a uh let's see probably this is probably the best slide uh to show it yeah mm-hmm. so, so what you're um there is a little bit of art to it but but basically what you do is um when you're flying you're trying to excite a particular mode or set of modes and so the stepper motors you'll try and drive it at the frequency um that of that mode to because you want to ideally you want to drive energy just to that one mode as best as possible um and then what you can do is you can use um you you have a set of accelerometers. And so generally you'll do what's called spatial filtering where you're either adding or subtracting combinations of accelerometers to really just focus on that one mode of interest. So if it's torsion, you're taking one from the other. If you're maybe doing symmetric bending, you're adding them. Um, okay. And ultimate, ultimately trying to get the final set of uh, measurements that you can then um, do your uh, modal analysis and, and get your frequencies and damping. Okay. Um, okay. So you are pretty much inducing the modes that you're looking for with the stepper motors. Correct. Okay. Um, and so, and this test is done. Say, uh, first of all, are there two people on the Perlin two? Yeah. Line? Yeah. There's there's always a, a pilot and a co-pilot. Okay. And is the test done? Say with one pilot, and then the real test is done with two pilots to offset like the weight of the instrumentation. So. Anything that so so we actually did um, during the ground testing. We actually um, studied the configurations of one pilot um, in the front, two pilots, um, and tried to give like a nominal. Okay, um, what if the pilot had a really big meal the night before, and <laughs> tried to bound that problem? Um, and it, it is there was some effect just because of the fact that the glider is overall relatively lightweight. Um, but it wasn't significant enough to dr- dramatically shift um, the, the the dynamic properties of the aircraft. Okay. Okay. Um, and mm-hmm. I, one question. Um, in your analysis, did you find that, say, wing sectioning uh, was ideal? Or would you have, like, output, like, a different configuration to, like, sectioning the wings to help modes out? <laughs> Sorry, can you say that again? Um, so say the wing was divided into three or four parts. Um, mm-hmm. If you divided it into, say, less parts or more parts, um, was was there like an output from your study that you said, like, if you did a third version, maybe you should do this? Oh, yeah. So you're talking about in the actual assembly? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what actually the way they have it, um, as you can see, as you can see there, the main part of the wing is sectioned there. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the picture is like just on the other side of this picture. But basically, the main part of the wing was one section. And then mm-hmm. it was actually just the winglet and the last couple feet that was a separate section. Uh, so in this case, it was just the two sections per wing. Um, mm-hmm. But no, I, I don't think we did any trade studies. Um, okay. As to whether uh, more or fewer sections were advantageous. Okay. All right. That, that, that's it. 
Thank you. Uh, of course, the, the ma ma mass moments of inertia are very important in uh, power yes. analysis, on, particularly in a long, thin lane like this. Uh, yeah. Curiosity about what the aspect ratio is. But did, yeah, I forgot to. I forgot to attempt to uh, to significantly change the mass moments of inertia by putting any ballast weights at uh, at any particular locations. Yep. Yeah, that was a big study. Was um, what sort of uh, mass they needed to do uh, <laughs> in with the control services in order to uh, make them, um, yeah, more dynamically stable to shift frequencies around. Um, so there was a fair bit of um, trade studies involved with that. Um, the nice thing was that those masses were on the orders of a couple pounds, so they didn't have to be huge. Um, they just had to be located at um, the right locations. Yeah, I, I didn't write the aspect ratio down off the top of my head, but I it, it's a total of, I think, oh, 80 feet um, long. And I mean, it's only four or five feet wide, so it's... Or actually, not even that. Um, yeah, it's it, it was a high aspect ratio, but I don't have that number off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. it, it may be online. I'm sure it is. All right, I see we've got Q and A in here. Okay, uh, Gary, I think uh, George George raised his hand. Yes, yes, okay. this, this is George Chow. I have a fundamental question. Okay. Uh, what's the what's what's the purpose or or the applications flying glider at a high altitude of ninety thousand feet? Sure. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, part of it is just to set a record, but the bigger part of it is that um, at the at the stratosphere, there's a lot of really interesting um, um, climate and and sort of. We don't have a whole lot of information in the in this area of um, altitude. Um, we we really are good at our um, everything below forty thousand feet. I mean, we're, we're flying there all the time. We have lots of measurements, but once you get above that level, um, it really drops significantly. And so you've, I mean, you can do obviously uh, balloons. You can do um, obviously powered aircraft, but then you've got uh really limited um time duration you can spend there and you also have all the effects due to um the burning the engine and so it's really hard to maybe get accurate measurements of temperature of um, other of wind etc that you want to do and so um the glider was really designed to, to be able to take long um uh segments of, of scientific data um, at those altitudes where we we just don't have a lot, but where we're noticing that with a lot of these climate models, um, that's becoming an area of, uh, of uncertainty. Uh, what's the maximum flight time over there? I mean, so they're, they're, in theory, their maximum flight time is just is really their, their battery and their um, oxygen. Um, but obviously they can... As long as the waves are are, um, are working, they can fly effectively forever. I think their longest actual flight spent a couple hours, um, but I think they've designed it to be, uh, I want to say seven or eight hours, um, 
of flight time that they could achieve if they're able to. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. As for the application of what the high, well, stratospheric uh, uh, atmospheric data is concerned, the, uh, the, the advent of hypersonics in the upper atmosphere is something that is uh, very dependent upon the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And we have very little actual data in that region, so uh, we recently made some comments about that. Yeah, yeah, good point. I wasn't even thinking of it from that perspective, but yeah, that's even more uh, more more uh, interest in in some of this data. Yeah, the rockets get through the that that region rapidly, and and that's there's experiments in that, but. The duration and the uh, you know geographic distribution that's not, that's another matter. Mm -hmm. uh, we have any questions in the chat? Uh, okay, I see a Q and A. Did you significantly modify the size of the glider during the study? Um, <clears throat> no, um, at that. Point, they had sort of um, already taken the glider one design had sort of already converged onto the sort of the overall parameters that they wanted to do. So uh, by the time we got to it, um, it was more or less here's the overall um, design. Um, you work within this box. Let me interject an, an issue that might come up. Uh, I'm, I'm located in another library in Riverside, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, I may lose this room within a few minutes, in which case I'll, I'll, leave, uh, I'll leave Ken to, to, to complete the remainder of the, of the interviews. But uh, otherwise, let's, do we have another question? Um, kind of related to uh, aspect ratio, but what's, what was the max L over D for the <laughs> for the glider? Oh gosh, um, I should know this. I do not have it off the top of my head. Um, let me. Is it guess. above fifty? I believe so. Do you know yeah. the, the actual weight, the, the, uh, the, the design weights? Oh, did we put it in there? <clears throat> These things are amazingly uh, light for this. Yeah. Size. Yeah, I don't think, uh, I think the backup slides got taken out that had a lot more of this stuff. Okay. Um, yeah, let me... Yeah. yeah the, those envelope uh, diagrams were particularly interesting uh, for, for, for flying a, uh, a straight wing aircraft at Mach 0.7. That, you're pretty much at the limits of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oops, I've got my screen covered up with, with chats and stuff. Okay. Uh... What is their strategy for hitting 90,000? Are they trying to go on a diet? Are they uh, trying to get 
or are they just hoping for better weather? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I think they've they've been, and and I'll confess that obviously with the pandemic, there they they mm-hmm. kind of put this on hiatus a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah, I think they they are mostly focused on um, trying to to get better waves. Um, I think they're obviously looking to see okay what what are there are there is there a weight that we can take off um but they've done a pretty good job of optimizing um i think the 90,000 is as much a like it would be really great to set it but i don't know if there's the funding to to do what would be needed to get there versus um if you saw in the video airbus is sponsoring them and so um going okay hey you've you still got the 75,000 um but you've demonstrated the 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 glider works um so yeah i know they're they're obviously everything everything is all money based and so uh, i haven't heard the latest as uh if they're attempting to come back to flight testing or if they're more just um yeah i I don't know what the latest is okay Matt put something interesting into the chat here, and that's about the digital image correlation, uh, which is an issue that we were looking at some years ago, uh, because uh, you know extremely light structures like this are hard to instrument, mm-hmm. and uh, you need to be very careful about what the, the effect of the, of the uh, instrumentation is on the load shapes and other information. Yeah, mass properties particularly. Hey guys, feel free to feel free to join us if you're interested. Tim Tim is I think going to be one of the main presenters from ATA just with our project staff. Um, um, but this is going to be a co-hosted seminar with Siemens on some pretty cool new high-speed cameras that they're offering. I believe it's a company called Match ID, um, and this is also a technology that's going to be coupled within ATA's advanced test group and the hardware and software offering offerings from Siemens uh, and three ATAs of ours. So this should be a pretty exciting seminar. If you click that link, there's a detailed dive on each. There's gonna be live demonstrations, a lot of work that went into it. It's a full day. Um, so we'll have uh, breakfast in the morning and coffee and uh, lunch catered throughout. And it'll be in our Curiosity, our largest training uh, room inside of ATA's corporate headquarters in San Diego. Well, that's that's actually gonna be a, a, an in-person event or is it also? Yeah, that'll be in person. In person. I don't think it's going to be recorded or broadcast via video feed in person for this one. Very interesting. Um, hmm. There's a question. Do you have some sort of a research paper out on this topic? Uh, I guess I'm not entirely sure what specifically. Um, we, we obviously... Um, have approval to present a lot of their stuff, but um, they ultimately own all the the data. And so um, this was about the extent that we were able to to share. Um, and it's, yeah, the, this, I would say n- nothing that, or I, I think this was just really interesting to sort of walk through because uh, a lot of engineers get to see pieces, but not the full thing. Um, mm-hmm. But I wouldn't say that there's anything that we did on this that was necessarily 
um, noteworthy or innovative enough that would be a research paper focus, but maybe if you had a specific question. I think maybe you was, do you have like a, a, on your website, a link that you have uh, your published paper on this posted publicly or people have to purchase the paper or something? I mean, so we do have a, oh, do we, I don't know if it's a white paper. It may just be like a, a case study that we've done online um, that we could pull together. Um, yeah, that would be great. Then we can yeah. post people can learn more about uh, your engineering effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, the, with this diagram right now, I just got around to reading the the the, uh, the, the axes on it. Mm -hmm. and you said once that, that you're running close to 100 knots, uh, calibrated airspeed is at maximum. And I see that about 63,000 feet, that's right at Mach 0.7. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's, that's closer to what I was previously asking you about than I expected. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I may have been may have been rounding up a little bit. I'd have to go back to the the raw data, but yeah, it was okay. it was moving. But do you know do you know what the stall speed is? Oh, must be it. Well, no, that this is these are flutter limits. No, that's right. BD and VD plus twenty percent. Mm -hmm. So the so the uh, VD is is really an indication of what the maximum intended speed is. Right. Yeah. And, so, and they were they were attempting to push that out to the right, weren't they? Mm -hmm. Any success on that? <laughs> uh, I think sort of the same thing. They were again with, with unfortunately with the waves. It's in order to get the high speed, you actually have to get pretty high and then obviously dive down. Um, and so initially they focused more on hitting the, the altitudes than the, the velocities. So I don't, I don't think we've gotten all the way to the, um, to the VD part of the curve yet. Mm -hmm. It'd be interesting to know where the minimum drag speed was in, in calibrated airspeed. Right. Yeah, I can I can see if I can pull together I know we have all that information just not off the top of my head. Sure. Recording in progress. So uh, for the flight test. Mm -hmm. Um when you uh were the exciters uh aerodynamic or inertial? Uh no, so they were um you can see here. Um so they were inside, so uh inertial yeah, inertial. <clears throat> Yep. So it's basically just a an offset mass that rotates, okay. and that's that's standard practice for air, for aeroelasticity tests. Uh, mm -hmm. You do not want to have the the excitation from the aerodynamics when you're approaching the, the critical speeds. Right. So you, you want to uh, excite the the mode and the frequency. Uh, as you approach the speed and you see how the damping is uh, coming out mm -hmm. and where you have to stop. Yeah. No, I understand. We, we've used barrel testers in the past that are essentially just slot, you know, slotted cylinders that are 
you know, can generate more forces with less inertia. But mm-hmm. like this, I was just wondering if it was too delicate to pull that off. Yeah, it was. I mean, the the force they were applying, I think, was only on the order of a couple pounds of force. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we didn't have an exact number on, on those on, that, on the mass of it, or the. But of course, the frequencies were uh, uh, essentially along the the frequency of the uh, of the mode, mm-hmm. the mode shape there. So. Yep. Yeah, but yeah, it was a it was a nice, a nice relatively cheap uh, approach to take. How close to the what what kind of damping level were you willing to go down to? So, I mean, we never like because of the fact that we never started to get to that curve. We mm-hmm. never, we never, we had like a nominal, um, like. But it was it was sort of an arbitrary. Um, we we were kind of gonna as we snuck up on it, started to have more in depth conversation, um, and just never got to that point. But uh, yeah, probably I don't think we. I think it was something at point oh two, point oh three. Um, but it was it was yeah, it was more looking. I think once we had hit that curve was when we were going to start being a lot more diligent because the, yeah, the challenging part was that um, we were not real time. We were near real time. Um, but ultimately the, the pilots had to have clearance to proceed without us. Um, and so we, yeah, as opposed to like a lot what other flight testing we've done where we're in a control room and we're seeing the real time traces and we're able to say knock it off aboard as needed. This was more of a okay, they're gonna do the maneuver and it's gonna take us 15, 20 minutes to get the data to process to tell them the values. Um so we had to be a little bit more conservative. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, when you when you test a, a very light object such as this in an ordinary atmospheric environment. Uh, the, the masses and damping of the aerodynamics of the of the air load or the, the effective air mass on the on the plane becomes significant. Were you mm-hmm. able to comment about that? Yeah, there, there was a. Um, we, we didn't really go into that. Obviously, we, we tested at flight level and then just used our predictions to account for um, the altitude. Um, yeah, it would have been interesting to have done more. Um, but yeah, it was obviously they budget budget related. We can only do so much. Um, yeah. My ancient history was that uh, uh, when I was in school, I worked in the in the Boeing, in the Boeing uh, wind tunnel mm-hmm. model design and uh, one of the projects that I worked on was an aeroelastic wing of the SST. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I sometimes say that we actually won that proposal and uh, we lost the 740, the DC, the, the, uh, the C5A proposal. Mm-hmm. 
So I worked on both of those a little bit, and uh, and in the end, the you know Lockheed was already flying supersonic or triple sonic. Yep. And uh, and 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 Boeing turned the the C five A proposal into a seven forty seven. So interesting combination there. Yeah. Sometimes you win when you lose. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, well, it's gotten, oops, wait a minute. A question, how important is aerodynamics for a structural engineer? I have a hard time understanding the depth of it, although I'm an aerostructures engineer. Any advice? Oh, um, yeah, I mean, that's. Depends on the size of the program. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say if, if uh -huh. and, and the size of your company, if you've got, right. if you've got a, a big team, I mean, obviously yeah, it's, I'm always going to recommend you understand more than less, but yeah, if you've got a, if you're working with a dedicated aerodynamics or elastics group, um, it's probably not as important as long as you understand the high levels, but yeah, if you're working on a team of two to five people, you, probably should know it pretty well. It's always good for table stakes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh. Okay, can I have a question? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, this Perlin to uh, glider uh, has been uh, tested in, um, have been tested in Argentina. Mm -hmm. um, and you also mentioned it's very good for uh, science uh, study for uh, stratosphere. Mm -hmm. Can this glider be applied? I mean, can it fly anywhere around the world uh, to uh, study the science of atmosphere? Any place in the world has to be, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, the uh, uh, things like a mountain area, like uh, the one in Argentina for the test. I remember Jim Payne mentioned something that uh, there's a reason for doing the test over there. So would that mm -hmm. be general enough that people will be interested in scientific study using Perlin. If it's just locally, then you are studying just a local atmosphere um, or, or phenomena. But I understand you, you test, uh, there's a reason for doing that, but mm -hmm. can you comment on that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, I guess I use the analogy of, of surfing. And so obviously you can surf multiple places in the world, but if you want to get the biggest waves and the the, the most exciting, you know, there's certain places where you're going to go to. And so this is very similar where, yeah, you can fly anywhere. I mean, obviously it's the glider doesn't care about that, but you have the challenge of if there's just not a lot of energy in the atmosphere at where you're flying, you're, you're not going to be super successful and you'll get, you'll get towed up to your initial altitude and then you'll be just doing a gradual descent the way you would with a normal glider um whereas yeah. if you're in a place where you do have the mountains and you have the high stratospheric waves well now you can really um uh, ride that energy and, and get to higher altitudes um but yeah there i mean fundamentally there's no reason not to practically um it's not yeah. every place will be the same you will always you need a set of mountains and you need a desert but uh, on the Backside of the prevailing winds from that mountain, right? Like yep. you see, that. so it has to go in that order. 
and then yeah and if not then you're right it's just a glider but did you identify any place else in the world that you can uh, have? So we have Moriarty. Like, I mean, I've, I've been out there. So like Moriarty oh, in Mexico oh, great. is essentially what we have, but <laughs> it's not as cool as Chile. <laughs> you know, it's you know, <laughs> not yep. quite as And I'm sure, I'm sure there's some places in China. There's definitely some places in Africa. Mm-hmm. But everyone, I mean, I have everyone knows that this place is where you track the big numbers. Mm-hmm. As I'm watching the, and looking at the uh, image of the waveform after the mountains there, mm-hmm. I'm reminded about uh, uh, a series of studies that uh, a friend of ours, uh, Phil Barnes, produced. And I don't know if you're familiar at all with Phil. No. He was a, is an aerodynamicist, uh, recently retired from Northrop Grumman. Mm-hmm. And he has a website that's that's identified as uh, How Flies the Albatross. I guess mm-hmm. I'll put that into the uh, into the, the the chat area here. Uh, so How Flies the Albatross is based upon his study of uh, how does the albatross stay uh, mm-hmm. in the air in the air for weeks at a, days and weeks at a time. Uh, without practically without flapping its wings, right? And it's basically a matter of uh, of climbing uh, into the yeah climbing into the uh, into the wind and uh, descending in the uh, in the valley. Mm-hmm. And they they manage to put one side of their brain to sleep so they can. Do this continuously and and still have consciousness, some consciousness operationally. Yeah. And uh, it's a very interesting presentation. It's available on his on his website, mm-hmm. along with a number of other things that are mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, no, I mean it would be interesting to see if we could, if you could do fly by feel on a glider like this to have it, you know aerodynamically more responsive to the environment, you know, both perceptive and you know, mm. morphing wise, if they could go that little extra further. Like this, I mean, that's when we think about birds, we kind of, I mean, it's, it's both. It's the fact that they can, they're literally, you know, they're really touching the air. So they have very good feedback. Right. <laughs> yeah. And they have that little bit of adjustability. I think it's, was it, was it ducks or there, there's some bird that can actually adjust the, the, the pinions of its feathers in order to um, mm-hmm. be a little bit more adaptive. And, and yeah, I, I think NASA has been doing some of that stuff about um, a little bit more adaptability and controllability of the aircraft in real time, where you actually change the, the aspect ratios and, and other uh, parameters. Um, mm-hmm. but, Oh, so Ra asked the question of, uh, do you recommend any textbooks for military and passenger airplane aerodynamics and space vehicles? Oh, yeah, I'm sure I'm blanking on the one I used in school, but 
there's there's a number out there. Um, it's a really great way to learn to work for ATA. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so should we? Uh, Gary, I have a question too. Sure, go ahead. Yeah, I actually be thinking about asking this for a long time uh, because a few years ago we also have another Gregor talk. It's a DG one thousand. Uh, so, um, why did your company pick up Perlin instead of DG one thousand? And uh, are these two of the major players in in kind of high performance uh, glider? Um, uh, and actually, Josh mentioned another company. Well, that was Debt Default. So yeah, I, oh, okay. I touched the, the Solara fifty back in the day, but they they had some gust problems. Um, and then you know, like that, now there's Sky Dweller, which I haven't really touch with out of Spain, but now they're, they're setting up domestically, so something's happening there. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember, there's, a, there's another pool of money out of the Bay Area. I mean, there's always a pool of money out of the Bay Area. Um, mm -hmm. Essentially, you know, another pseudo satellite. So I'm kind of curious to see when it'll resurge, essentially, because we have had that, we've had enough development in solar panels and batteries that, I mean, if we're willing to let the thing catch on fire, that we could try again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for us, it was just they had a, um, they had. I mean, we're we're an engineering services consulting company, so they just reached out to us, said, "Hey, can you help us in this area?" And originally, it was just to be a very small piece of the puzzle, and then as it went along, we just sort of kept on um, going. Hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? And um, <laughs> ended up obviously becoming a much much more intensive project, but. Yeah, we have a, a we get we get to because of the nature of our work, we really are test anything that vibrates. So you can do a lot of really fun uh both aerospace and non-aerospace applications. Mm -hmm. I think noted you mentioned you have shaker in the uh in your company, uh, so mm -hmm. that's also good for testing yeah. satellite. Yep. You know. Oh is mm -hmm. the name I was thinking of. There's a new one out of Berkeley that's oh, called okay. Zephyr. Zephyr. Yep. Yeah, okay, yeah. So I see. So what I mean is uh, Perlin uh, approached you initially a small vibration problem and it expanded to a full scale. So mm -hmm. it, it, what happened if these uh, uh, people doing this uh, DG1000, they approach you, you can still also do something uh, analysis for them. That's what you're saying, if they contact you. Yeah, I mean, we're obviously, we would, I, I would go back to our contracts people and make sure that we didn't have any agreements, but yeah, oh. generally, as long as you're not providing proprietary or, or competitive advantage information. Um, I see. But are they competing each other? The DG 1000 and Perlin? Uh, I, I, okay, that's yeah, I don't so, know about that. So I've usually used ATA for space applications. How mm -hmm. big is the aeronautics side of the company? So we don't, we don't um, really, what's the word? We, we differentiate based on, um, on field, but not on application. So, okay. so I, I guess I would say our, our aerospace and our, um, or our aero and our space are both the size of our company. It's just, we have people who do thermal, who do structural, who do um, acoustics. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we're as long as you have money, we're willing to help you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yep. 
Oh, but it's also very important to get, uh, you know, like Microsoft, you know, you get uh, people to use it, get used to it, and more mm -hmm. people buying it. So mm -hmm. we are doing also kind of outreach education here. Uh, do, you, do you have some kind of nonprofit version or kind of uh, a demo version, you know, when we do outreach? And uh, uh, we actually also plan, we can uh, work on some other way, Los Angeles uh, uh, workshop, and then you can come here. That we can do, but do you have also something like, uh, you know, like a cheaper or free, uh, free version? We do outreach. We can show, uh, you know, the kids or the kids get familiar with with uh, uh, your service and uh, product. I think if I heard you correctly, you're oh, saying okay. that the of course those those uh, center the cement probably have contract, but you also mentioned about mm -hmm. some virtual pilot. Uh, you know, the virtual control room, virtual pilot, some kind of interesting product. Yeah, uh, so, so that that's not ours. The virtual cockpit is uh, is actually Perlin's. Uh, they created basically a way for anyone online who wants to track uh, their flights in near real time. Um, they have a website where you can actually watch it and you can see the, the uh, different flight parameters. Um, so that wasn't powered by Tesla? Totally separate. Yeah, correct. That was that was a basically it's just a they they took their telemetry data and streamed it to um, just a, a front end um, visualization that you could really just kind of follow along with them. Um, yeah. Okay. But but yeah, I mean, in terms of I guess encouraging the next generation and so forth. I mean, we're always trying to um, present at schools, um, free webinars. I mean, just, I'm sure like you guys are just always trying to encourage interest in, in education. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so on the hardware and software side, Siemens definitely does have programs for academia. So if it's for academic use, university licenses, um, oh, okay. those can be down to complementary for both test and simulation. So for test lab and sim center. Let me go back to another question that was right in here in the in the in the chat and uh, any references for first order wing weight build-up models that take it desired flutter characteristics into account before going to the pen um i'm sure there are well, nothing off the top of my head while you're while you're thinking about that my first order answer to that is that the uh the aircraft design generally are established by the requirements and the and uh, uh, the functionality of the of the surfaces. And so, when you need a high aspect ratio wing, that's what you go for. You make it uh, as thin and light as you can, and within the within the uh, strength and performance requirements. And then you find out what you got as a as a flutter characteristic, uh, mm -hmm. and then you subsequently come in and, and modify things if necessary. But uh, no, you can't guess these things. Uh, the them is what gets you the answer. Yeah, yeah, I think I agree with that. It's and I then think... I start thin. Sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah, I was just say, and always think when you have high aspect ratio vehicles that at the armpit. The weight airfoil is probably not that thin. If you look at like the Predator, I mean, 
those cord thicknesses are 40, 50%. I mean, they're, they're pretty fat wings. Mm -hmm. that. Structures right. guys like that. Make our life easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't Big turk box tall. <laughs> yes. Uh, let me see if you can see. The, the structures kind of. book uh, that I used in college by Brun shows a, an image, a cartoon that was shown by, uh, it was drawn by by the various goals of the of the various disciplines. And of course, the, uh, you know, the engine manufacturer, the, the power plant people want big engines and mm -hmm. the uh, the aircraft, the, the structures guys want uh, I beam. straight yeah. structures with I-beams and, yep. and uh, minimal thicknesses and the aerodynamicist. Uh, the, so each each discipline has their own ideal con configuration and uh, any aircraft is the consequence of compromise between all those groups. Right. Yeah. Plus, you forgot the the sales and marketing people who have to right. <laughs> convince people to buy it. <laughs> Make it sexy. Yep. Yeah. That's where the spaceship comes in. All right. I don't see any well, more I questions. Think we did, did a very nice and complete job of, of this. Uh, we're getting a lot of congratulations about uh, the wonderful presentation. I fully yeah. agree. Great. Well, thank you, everyone, and thank you. Gary and Ken and the whole AIAA uh, community for inviting us. And uh, yeah, please reach out if you have additional questions, comments, or. Or you want to buy something. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Well. Yeah. All right. All right. Thank you, Tim. Uh, thank you, Gary. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Have a good weekend. Okay. okay. I guess we can stop the recording at this point.